those technologies are already, you know, moving into the marketplace. So we have to be focused on innovations in order to continue to remain competitive and, and, you know, produce value for our investors. That's better than our competitors, right? Hello, and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hey, our sponsor for the show today is Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota. And they were recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through their investment prospectus. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. Look, there's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me today, I'm excited to have Scott Choppin. Scott, how are you doing today? Uh, Todd, I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for the invite. I'm glad to join you. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate having you on. And a little bit about Scott. He is the founder of the Urban Pacific Group of Companies, a Long Beach, California-based real estate development company founded in 2000, focuses exclusively on urban infill and affordable housing communities throughout California and the Western U.S. Over the last 18 years, the company's developed nearly 1,700 units of unique to market to market urban housing community throughout the Western US. Currently, Urban Pacific has created a new housing innovation called UTH, which provides middle-income, multi-generational housing to urban families while producing market superior yields on invested equity. I'm gonna let Scott explain more about that because that's a mouthful. So I'm gonna let you kind of uh, explain what you guys are doing um, maybe a little bit about your background and, and fill us in on, on the details that I haven't covered so far. Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate that introduction. So, you know, as, as that introduction said, we're a real estate developer. So I see that being differentiated from an investor. For me, I always thought of those as, you know, generally synonymous, but I'm in my, you know, close to 40th year in this business. Um, I've really come to the conclusion that they're very different offers. And that's great. I mean, they're, they're both uh, good offers, uh, like you and I spoke about before. So uh, family background in real estate development, my family's been building and developing in Southern California since 1960. Uh, I came into the business in the in the mid 90s, um, started work uh, for a company called Kaufman and Broad multi housing group, which is a uh, national home building company, everybody now knows as KB home. And there I worked for a division that syndicated and developed apartment projects, so new construction, ground up, apartment deals. I uh, was there for a number of years, uh, leaving ultimately as their most senior project manager with generally profit loss responsibility for the, for the groups of deals that I worked on. I left there to go to a company called Saris Regis Group in Orange County, another um, regional developer of apartment communities uh, and I was their land acquisition director in, on the multifamily market rate side. So again, ground up development of apartment assets. You'll see a continuing theme here. 
And then uh, in 2000, I started Urban Pacific. And at the time, uh, the idea of urban infill, and that's ba basically building new communities in already built out neighborhoods on underutilized or vacant parcels was not a mainstream, you know, uh, direction that real estate developers took. But a couple of folks that I know, a guy named Bob, Bob Gardner at a company called Robert Charles Lesser was very positive on the future growth of cities and particularly residential housing product in, in those already built out neighborhoods that would be attractive to future demographics. So we founded the company, I founded the company in 2000 to pursue that product type. And we've been doing that now, we'll be on our 20th year of operation next year. And so fast forward to today, uh, we've built, uh, you know, probably got close to 30 projects, um, all of them urban infill, different food groups is the way I think of it, Todd. So I've done affordable housing, tax credit, uh, new construction. We've done uh, condo, high density, urban infill. And, but most importantly, we've done our, the vast majority of our projects have been um, basically market rate, multifamily. And so about two and a half years ago, we noted uh, a flat spot in the market in Southern California. And what I mean by that is um, both lenders and equity at the time were sort of pulling back from the, you know, high density, you know, um, complex, um, you know, studio and one bedroom mix type of apartment projects. And so that gave us the opportunity to, you know, poke our heads up and start looking around at, at what was the marketplace generally, uh, what was supply and demand characteristics. And it really um, brought home for us the fact that there was a lot of supply coming online. Now there's a lot of demand in Southern California. I'd say we're the most undersupplied marketplace in the United States, but nonetheless, we don't want to compete, you know, where everybody else is competing if we can choose to do something different. And so that had us create this UTH model that you reference in your uh, introduction, and that stands for Urban Townhouse. And basically, Urban Townhouse is a, a purposely designed and built rental housing model that it builds at a townhouse density, about 25 to the acre. Uh, but most importantly, we're designed a unit type that provides a five-bedroom, four-bath, three-story townhome model. And our demographic uh, concentration is on working moderate income families in the same urban infill communities that we've always built, but really serving, you know, this, this vast middle group of uh, family groups that are larger, moderate income working families uh, who don't have the opportunity to generally rent in new housing that will fit their lifestyle. In other words, if you have a large family group, you know, six to eight people, a studio, you know, unit and a high rise, you know, new construction, you know, apartment deal doesn't make any sense. You would never choose it. And the rents are very high. So UTH was, was created. We created it and designed it to be multi-generational uh, fit large family groups. And uh, we're on our fifth, sixth and seventh projects right now in that business plan. The first four were a demonstration phase and then the rest of them so far are larger projects and what we're now calling our production phase. Interesting. Um, and, and so I'm trying to picture like where these would be when you say <laughs> urban infill. Um, 
are they in the heart of the city? Are they within the suburbs? Like where is something like this going to yeah, be? Yeah, where, where is, that's a great question. So we're, uh, we're not in the central business district, you know, think high rise financial district. We're not there. Land's too expensive and, you know, densities are yeah. wanting to be higher in those marketplaces. Um, we, we generally will focus on peripheral neighborhoods from the central business district. So in, you know, uh, Southern California, we're building in a city called Fullerton, which is, you know, it's not suburban, but it's not the central core and Orange County doesn't really have much in the way of central cores anyways, but you get the point where, you know, we're, you know, one or two neighborhoods out from the central business district. Um, We're usually in low and, and moderate income neighborhoods because that's where the family groups that we rent to that demographic of large working families, that's where they live. Um, and importantly, these projects are gonna be close to job centers, but in neighborhoods that are gonna generally be more affordable. We just then happen to deliver a new housing type to those neighborhoods where we're supplying these five bedroom, four bath units, which you know, in every neighborhood that we're building in now, Either there's been 30 or 40 year gaps since new housing's produced Fullerton, I think it's 40 plus years since a new project in that particular neighborhood. And then we're delivering these five bedroom units into a marketplace where these families already live. So we're just really creating a new product and introducing it into the market where these families already exist. And we've had, you know, huge, you know, positive reaction to the family groups that, uh, that are renting our projects presently. No, I, I might be wrong on this, but typically when there's a 40-year gap, 30-year gap um, if, in building, it's typically because building just financially doesn't make much sense anymore. Um, Agreed. Or, yeah. or or there's just no demand there. Maybe the population yeah. has gone down, whatever it is, but it financially just doesn't make sense. So what are yeah. you doing in order for it to financially make sense? Are you getting uh, you know, credits or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Or how are you making it make sense? Well, so I'll add a third way of thinking as to why there's no new housing. And in Calif- it's a California story, and it's really an urban story. But in, in a lot of cities in California, we don't have appropriate zoning for a higher density product. So as an example, you'll have vast areas of major cities in California that are zoned all R1. And for the most part, you will never build anything in, in an R1 zone. And so you're, you're physically just unable to build a product that is financially feasible. So that does tie into that financial feasibility question, right? Yeah. So you're right there. But it's really enforced by zoning. And so what we're doing is we're going into neighborhoods that are basically sort of off the beaten path. These would be a, a lower income neighborhood in Fullerton. You know, use that as an example. Or in West Fullerton, it's a blue collar neighborhood you know, predominantly, you know, older houses and older apartment projects, nothing newer than the 60s or 70s. Yeah. And zoned in a way that didn't allow anything higher density to go there. So if you were to do a four or five story podium project, you couldn't do it there, right? And that's generally what's working today. So we found this interesting, you know, intersection of all the sites that we buy are already zoned correctly for our three-story townhouse, 25 dwelling units to the acre product. We're just finding it in neighborhoods that have sort of been passed over because they're not the right income categories for a new housing type. There are other people in, in California that do three-story, uh, predominantly condo product, you know, for sale. 
they won't go into these neighborhoods because the income, you know, the incomes of the neighborhood don't, you know, support the housing prices that they need to sell at and people yeah. wouldn't buy them, right? Even if they were going to import. So this is a sort of passed over low and moderate income neighborhood story. This is a zoning story. And then really for us, the, the, the secret of this model is that by producing these five bedroom units, we're able to generate rent in a different way than was done you know, previously. The way we call it, Todd, is it's a density of bedroom count, not necessarily a density of units. And so they achieve the same thing, but the zoning we can, you know, fit into existing zoning a little more, more easily while producing more revenue per unit. So as an example, Long Beach, where we're based, I'm looking at a site that's will allow a restricted number of units, right? Let's say it's a 30 unit project, but there's no restriction on how many bedrooms I can put in that. And so as long as I can comply with the setbacks and the, you know, the footprint and the parking particularly is one of the constraints, then I'm unlimited on the number of bedrooms I can produce in that project and therefore rents can be higher. So ultimately in our projects that generates a higher whole dollar rent uh, right now we're, you know, most of our projects are running between three and 4,000 a month for a 1,750 square foot unit, which is, you know, basically the size of a house, you know, if you were to build something new. It is an attached apartment with a garage on the ground floor, um, but it fits in this in this you know sort of missing middle you know middle income middle density category uh, very nicely. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> I got a question. And this is not really related to what we've been talking about so far, but I, I got to ask it because it's on my mind. <laughs> California has this like uh, uh, investor flight. I would mm -hmm. say is so mm -hmm. many investors that I know they're from California, live in California, are not investing in California. Right. They want to invest anywhere, everywhere but else. Right? Yeah, everywhere else. And, yeah. and it's funny because right. I invest uh, both in, in Minnesota, which where I live and outside of Minnesota. And when I call brokers and I talk to them, I make sure I mention I'm not from California. <laughs> Oh, good. I'm definitely not with, from there, right? I love it. They, they don't want to deal with California people. Yeah. But anyways, so my right. question is, you're in California. You're building mm -hmm. in California. There's opportunity in California. Do you have an idea of why people are running from California and not investing there? Yeah, I actually do. And, and you know, as, as we spoke about uh, earlier, you know, uh, you know, value add is, is, you know, the most powerful, you know, offer in the marketplace right now for investors to invest in multifamily product. It has a different risk profile than development, you know, an existing assets already got occupancy and cash flow. And, you know, for a lot of folks that's, you know, that's invaluable or they would never choose a deal that didn't have that. And I, you know, I, I accept, right. But, you know, we do the same thing uh, when we buy existing, but, you know, we're focused on, on development. The reason people are leaving California is because it's become so expensive. I mean, we are, you know, by different measures, the, the highest priced and, you know, most sought after multifamily marketplace in the United States for capital that may be overseas or, you know, institutional capital sources that <clears throat> want to be in markets with exceptionally high demand and low supply, right? If you can get into the marketplace appropriately at a certain price, then the other characteristics of the market under supply and, and high demand are very, you know, powerful, attractive for us, right? Uh, but 
California investors, you know, having either owned historically and watched the rise in price and, and are net sellers in that marketplace because they can get very high values. Then when you sell, you go, okay, now what do I do? I can't rebuy in California because I'm going to be buying at the price that I sold. That doesn't make sense. So then you start to look outside of California for, you know, better cap rates, you know, better per unit values, even if the rent and supply stories are different. And, you know, we've done the same research ourselves. So I think it's just a very high value purchase market. Um, lack of deals, you know, certainly lack of deals that are priced appropriately to be defensive, right? I mean, we, I think we're all tracking it, but, you know, we're all of the mind that a recession's coming at some point. And to me, if you, you were going to go into an existing asset at a very, very high value, low cap rate, you know, a very thin margin for any change in, you know, uh, economic cycle or interest rate changes, it's just a, it's a, it's a weak position to be in. And again, not saying value add is weak. I'm just saying overpriced value add is weak. Right. And so our, our development model, you know, allows people to, you know, to buy into deals. And although our values are high, also um, we're raising capital long-term hold basis that allows our investors to come into our deals, buying in at maybe a six to a seven cap rate. In other words, that's the value that we raise capital in or for when we, you know, get done with the deal and rent it up, <clears throat> you know, NOI to cost is, you know, six to seven, right. In a market that's easily four cap or sub four cap rate on a regular basis, even in very marginal neighborhoods. And so, you know, that's, you know, part of the reason our offer we think has, has value, but um, you know, California is just a, it's a tough market, right? So high values. Um, uh, but if you can get in, uh, you know, restricted supply and high demand, right? So that's a good story, but it's got to make sense economically, you know, as you'd expect. Well, and maybe tough zoning now huh? and per permitting and all that kind well, of stuff. Well, that's, yeah, that's part of the undersupply story. Now, if you're, if you know, that's part of the reason it's so expensive, right? There's just not enough new supply. So in any restricted supply situation, you know, it's interesting, you know, listening to the, you know, political voices in California, both the, you know, state and local governments who are like now under a mandate to produce more housing. But then it, when you find the neighborhoods where new housing's, you know, wanting to be produced, you know, like, oh, no, we got enough, right? You know, like mm -hmm. an NIMBY approach. And you go, well, no, because look at the economics, right? Restrict supply and, of course, uh, equal demand or higher demand and prices can only go up both in valuations and rents. So this is weird dichotomy of thinking of, oh, let's restrict supply and therefore it'll make it more affordable. And, you know, everybody's sort of forgetting their economic 101 lessons. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got a couple questions that, it came out of there. First of all, are you guys keeping your assets long-term or is it a certain hold period? You know, we, uh, so in the early parts of the demonstration phase, we did those first four projects. Our intention was just to prove the model up. We wanted to be disciplined in our approach and, you know, make sure, you know, nobody's built, you know, at scale, five bedroom, four bath units. So we wanted to make sure it was a viable model. And we've done that. We've now completed the sale of the first three assets that we developed. But here's where we go with it. So two things drive us changing now to a long-term hold, basically position in our capital raises, which long-term hold generally for us means 10 years plus. Okay. And I'm of the philosophy that if I can keep, you know, as a company, hold on to them forever, that's, you know, that's where I want to be. 
Um, so that's if you hold them on, uh, hold on to them for forever, quote unquote, right. forever. Are you getting your investors out of those deals somehow, or are they always staying in? Yeah, well, you know, we're 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 seeking people that would like to be in them forever, and so we have a few family offices that are oriented that way. But you know, as you would expect, the marketplace generally is you know looking for you know a fixed period of time to invest. You know, yeah. forever's you know you know too vague. <laughs> forever's vague, and 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 rightly so. You know, so we got to be coherent with that. So generally, we're setting a time period of ten years. Yep. Of course, any you know capital raise has to have some provision for if a if a you know an investor needs to exit for like emergency purposes or some other um, you know we'll give a certain you know percentage of redemption capability within the LLC structure, and then Got we it. you know we are raising literally around a ten year hold. But then we'll also put in mechanisms in the LLC agreements um, that, you know, at 10 years, we say, hey, we want to hold, you guys will buy you out. So think of it like a put and call option. So it's a mechanical, you know, uh, legal characteristic of the LLC agreement that allows us to, you know, um, ha- you know produce a yield for them because at the end of the day, they're investing to, to make money. And, you know, yeah. we, we, we need to hold that concern first and foremost, and we do. Um, so we need to have a, a mechanism that is, allows us to create the value that they need, allow them to exit, but allow us to, uh, to hold on to it. Now, yep. you know, could be that, you know, they decide to stay in great. Um, you know, we could both decide to sell in 10 years because the market's great. We've come through a recession. Part of the reason, Todd, we do 10 years is that, you know, we're of the mind and we're vigilant about a recession coming. Right. I think everybody's, you know, expecting it, you know, does it come in 12 months? Does it come in two years? It's unknown. Um, But we've switched to a long-term hold model because we make the assessment that if we have a recession, you know, anywhere from two to four years from now to start, and it's, you know, two to four years long, then a 10-year hold period has some comfort level that we ride through the recession and come out the other side and that we're not forced to sell in year five when we're in the depth of whatever downturn hits us. Um, so that allows us to be patient because um, yeah. we all saw in 2008, 2009, that uh, at least in California, a lot of the apartment projects that were transacting at that time were actually cash flowing very, you know, very stably, right? Um, no, you know, reduction in any major way of, of rental rates but values were off, right? Because the economy was off and cap rates and demand characteristics for purchase of apartments, you know, disappeared for a period of time almost entirely. But if you looked at the income and the NOI, they were like really stable. And so if we, you know, you know, move that thinking forward and particularly related to our stable tenant base of working families who tend to stick around because they have strong social networks we're of the mind that we're going to have a relatively stable renter population, stable NOI, but we want to be defensive against valuation reductions, which, you know, we interpret will come. Um, but that, you know, we've seen, you know, 2008, 2009 values return, even, you know, exceeding, you know, those, you know, pre-recession values to a great degree in some cases. We can't know that that will be the case for our projects in 10 years. Um, but we know the undersupply story is not going away for probably decades, right? We're not never going to catch up in any short-term period of time. And so 
you know, we look at this undersupply, defensive stable, you know, renter base and protective time periods to not have to sell in five years during recession as our best chance to produce value in the 10th year for these investors when we exit. Yeah. You talk about recession, obviously, as you said, we don't know if it's coming in 12 months or four years, mm-hmm. um, but doing development, you have a, an, an unoccupied building while you're in the development yeah. phase. You have a piece of dirt that you have before you even start the development <clears throat> phase. So you have some risk there. What Absolutely. are you doing to hedge against that risk to mitigate some of that the risk uh, factor that you have with the development um, yeah. that maybe you wouldn't have if you just did a regular um, value add? Right. On value yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and so the first answer is what we just talked about of having, you know, capital timing coherent with that, you know, eventuality. Yeah. So that's the first one. Second is, you know, the second two risks are, are a build out risk, meaning, you know, what's our construction completion risk. And, and in fact, in a recessionary environment, I'm encouraged that construction costs may modify or moderate to some degree. I don't know that they'll go down, but, you know, at least the pressure ever upwards that we've been experiencing for the last, you know, decade will, will, will slow down or, or plateau, right? So that's a little bit of a defensive mechanism. But the main thing is that we go... Our, our, our biggest unknown is that, we ha- that we've finished the project, we have empty units, and now we need to go to lease, right? Yeah. And we're now in a recession. Like, that's the scenario I think about most. And so you have this market risk of, you know, lease up. And then you could add a fourth one, which would be financing risk, which, you know, you say you get to the end of the day and you can't find any permanent loan. Um, to take out the construction loan. So those are the last two. So on the rental risk, um, this is one of the interesting things. So our tenant base is very sticky. You heard me describe that before. And and that's basically strong social networks. And so this is one of the protective mechanisms of this particular demographic because, you know, differentiating from like, say, a millennial or Gen Z renter, which is the predominance of new housing is serving those demographics and appropriately so given how large that demographic cohort is. Um, but millennials and Gen Z are much more mobile, right? If the job situation changes, their economy changes and their jobs are lost, they can move home. Uh, I joke with our leasing staff that, you know, those, those folks can move to Austin yesterday, right? And so that's coherent with their lifestyle, right? They're mobile, they're young, they don't have any, you know, thing to tie them down. It's perfectly appropriate for their age group. But we just say, we don't want to rent to those folks. We want to rent to, you know, to a demographic or a type of renter profile that is going to stick around. So that's our UTH, you know, middle income working families. So their kids are in school locally, you know, their church is down the road, uh, their extended family is close by. And, and as importantly, that these families generally uh, will choose their housing that's co-located to where they work. And in other words, these are not super commuter families that drive, you know, two hours each way to live in Antelope Valley and, you know, work in, you know, the basin in LA. They basically, so, you know, one of our projects in Long Beach was, you know, about two miles from the port of Long Beach and our profile that, you know, like our, you know, renter avatar was a, you know, a, a man who drove a truck at the port, right? Short haul trucking, 
um, was not going to commute in from a far distance, but would choose housing that, you know, got them in, in and out of that, you know, job location as close as possible. Plus these families are, you know, have multiple wage earners in the family. So our typical way we think of it is six to eight people in the family group, two to four wage earners, say mom and dad, adult child or two, maybe, you know, grandmother, we, we do build multi-generationally uh, with a ground floor bedroom bathroom. And so what we can look forward to is that we continue to offer units to families that are sticking around. So we're in a new, you know, uh, rental situation, empty units. Um, you know, so we have that, you know, availability of tenant base that they're not leaving town generally. Right. And so we can look forward to having, you know, available families to rent these units, but here's an, an added benefit. We have found through our research that, in fact, our market rents are generally very close to Section 8 FMR rents. Because our units are so big, um, you know, we are very close, maybe slightly above or below Section 8 FMR rents. And so I'll give you an example. We're looking at a project right now up in the Bay Area. Um, we're, we're thinking of renting these units at 4500 a month for the, our same five-bedroom unit, 1750 square feet. And that Section 8 FMR is 45.23. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we wouldn't net 45. We have to take out the utility allowance. But in the defensive situation that, that we're describing here, down market, we would open up more of our units to Section 8 families, which, you know, vast undersupply in that market as well. Yeah. Uh, we don't intend to rent these 100% to Section 8 families. That's not our model. Um, but we could certainly adjust that, you know, very easily to expand into those marketplaces. So, again, none of this is bulletproof. Um, but what we do say is, you know, we're looking at it a downturn scenario. Does our underwriting and projections have the highest likelihood to succeed and be defensive in, a, in that environment? And everything that we do really is to, you know, model and, and present a financial capital and, and renter structure that can make us defensive in that downturn scenario. I like the answer. I mean, very good. And, and I, I can tell you have really thought it out. And that's what's really important when we're looking at a, our investment strategy. And I don't care what part of the cycle you're in. I, I can tell you mm -hmm. I've been in real estate for uh, 11, almost 12 years. Mm -hmm. And every, every year I've been into it. We're either entering a recession, going to see a double dip recession, going to see interest rates skyrocket. We've got some sort of, you know, sky is falling scenario that everybody right. has where if you prepare for and understand that, that we will shift, the market will shift, mm -hmm. there will eventually be a recession and you have it well thought out you're mitigating your risks and that's right. really all you can do is take it, take those risk factors and go, okay, what are the checks that mm -hmm. we can put in place to, to kind of s secure that, to really protect our investors money. And you've done that and you're, it's really well thought out. I appreciate that. I, the, your the, strategy the, works for California. It works for where you're at and it right. won't necessarily work in, you know, Minneapolis, but it works for where mm -hmm. you're at. Yeah. Yeah. The, the assessment we make is this, you know, like we've underwritten, you know, almost all the major urban metro markets on the West Coast and Denver. And then this model works on all those marketplaces, but absolutely in, you know, middle America and even, you know, parts of California that are inland, like Riverside County just doesn't work. 
And, you know, we're, we're not like, you know, upset by that. We just realize, you know, our, our metric is when housing costs come down enough that renter, rental houses, when people rent single family houses, those prices drop enough to intersect with the, the sector, sector of the market that we want to be in, then that's a market we don't go in, right? And we can even sort of model it, you know, from concentrically from the LA basin and get to, you know, a few miles outside of the LA County border and it stops working. Yeah. Uh, so we're very, you know, particular. In fact, I tell brokers, you know, they send, you know, the opposite I have with brokers. I go, I actually don't want the high end neighborhoods. I want the low and moderate income neighborhoods because land prices are more efficient and, you know, zoning is a little easier to find more available sites. But, you know, again, that's where our demographic already lives. Well, and that's what I was going to say. And the two is you've got the demographic, you've already, already caught onto you understand them you understand what when they're moving why they're mm-hmm. moving and mm-hmm. that they're probably not going to move a recession yeah. comes these people want to cling on to their their house they that's right and the last thing they're going to do is try to move because that's expensive for them and well i mean you know might just, end up being homeless if they right well i mean you know just the just the nature of you know like just a basic fact of having kids in school is you know i know for me i i have kids you know they're they're you know not not you know between 12 and 18 years old i wouldn't dream of moving them now i'm you know not necessarily am i comparable for this demographic but i think all parents have that concern right so i go if we understand it from that standpoint then we say that's a factor that they consider uh, just the same as when people buy homes, they want to be in the, you know, the best possible school district. It's the same, you know, uh, you know, sort of metric that they use. And just in this case, these families go, look, I want to be close to our jobs. And, and remember, it's multiple jobs, right? Mom and dad and adult kid and aunt and, and, you know, Aunt Jane, you know, they're all working different jobs and they need to be close to all those jobs or at least as central as they can be. So that's, that's a pretty powerful motivator to stick around. Hey, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, Pine Financial Group. Look, you work hard for your money. Is your money working hard for you? Because of inflation, money sitting idle erodes your wealth. Many investors understand that real estate is a great investment, but may not want the effort or the risk that comes with owning their own property. They want to sit back and have payments, hit their bank account each and every month. Stop eroding your wealth and start building by asking your money to work for you. You should be earning profits while you sleep in investment backed by real estate. Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota, was recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through the investment prospectus. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. There's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. It's www.pineinvestments.com. Well, Scott, let's let's talk a little bit about the business and the structure mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. you guys have done to be successful. So maybe maybe give us uh, three key success uh, tips that our listeners can take from you on what's worked well in your business. What have you guys mm-hmm. done really to, to move that 
needle forward to be able to get the 1700 units built and right. continue to, to establish a good business. So one of, one of the first ones I think uh, just in, in thinking about this question, Todd is, is it's something you said a little bit ago, which is, you know, sort of being protective about a downturn. Now, none of us can sit around like worrying about the sky going to fall tomorrow because then we'd never do business. So the mood I use, the descriptions, I call it vigilant, right? I'm watchful. I'm prudent. I, I you know, we go continue to do business because we believe in the model and we believe in these marketplaces, but vigilance includes a certain amount of prudence, which is just being careful and where that shows up is an underwriting. And in fact, I've been telling my teams as, as project managers, I, you know, I, I basically teach them how to underwrite deals and run our performance and that kind of thing. Is that when I was younger and, you know, both working corporately and, and, you know, in the early years of running my own company, I was much more aggressive in how I assumed, you know, the future would look on various things, rents, you know, operating expenses, you know, things we worry about in the multifamily business, costs of construction, which is a right. unique to development. And then, you know, interest rates. And so I'm really, you know, the joke I make is, you know, when I was younger, every deal could work. Like there's no deal I looked at that I couldn't figure out a way to problem solve and be creative and make it work. And now I'm of the mind, it's the opposite. You know, almost every deal is going to die, you know, very quickly, you know, as quickly as we can underwrite it and, and you know, move past it. Um, but I think it's just being oriented around a conservative underwriting. Now I say that it sounds just like so obvious, but I think anybody who's new to the multifamily investment business and is hungry for deals, it affects how you look at your underwriting. And I think as somebody becomes more seasoned, you know, including somebody like yourself, after a while you go, nope, you know, can't, you know, the broker says you can achieve a 200 a month rent increase if you, you know, change the, you know, interior specifications and you go, maybe, and then you test and you go, no, it's really like 50 to hundred. I'm making yeah. these numbers up, of course, yeah, but you, you, know, it, it, you can make any pro forma work if you change enough of the right assumptions to, yeah. you know, to make it work. Right. I've done it, you know, a million times. And so now I just, I can, you know, and I'll probably do this for the rest of my career. I just look at something, I go, Nope, that doesn't work. You know, and if that change in underwriting makes the deal die, then unfortunately that's what happens. And you just own that and, and move on to the next one. It's, you know, there's plenty of deals in the marketplace and you should never be beholden to any particular deal so much that you're willing to, you know, sort of, you know, uh, use weaker assumptions on your underwriting. So, you know, call it powerful underwriting, you know, conservative underwriting, however you want to describe it, but that would be in this business. And that applies to any deal business, right? Whether it be development or, or value add. So that's one. Um, so the other one I, I really focus on a lot for my own career is, is, you know, continuous competitive learning. Um, so, you know, I'm oriented around and, and work with, uh, you know, a particular group um, that focuses on, you know, uh, learning, you know, new and cutting edge strategic knowledge, right? So think of things that help us run our business more effectively. And I don't mean tactically. So, you know, not how to do different accounting practices or what software to use. I don't mean that. What I'm meaning is ways to be in the marketplace, both as a company, like how we present to the marketplace, what our identity is, 
but also me personally as the person who is the CEO and founder of the company. So the, the you know, strategic knowledge in this case would things about, you know, uh, holding, building and maintaining trust, right? Now, everybody speaks trust in business. I think everybody uses it commonly and there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's a perfectly appropriate way to do it. But I'm oriented around how do you actually maintain and build trust, like truly, not, you know, not BS. And so we, we, I personally spend a lot of time and I work in networks of, of people who, who learn this continuously. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with new technologies, you know, in the, in the development business, modular housing's a, a very new, hot, growing sector. Um, 3D printed housing is an even newer technology. And, and those things are on their way. Those technologies are already, you know, moving into the marketplace. So we have to be, focused on innovations in order to continue to remain competitive and, and, you know, produce value for our investors. That's better than our competitors, right? Ultimately we're always competing. And I think it's just, you know, the, the orientation around continuous learning, competitive learning practices to maintain that innovation um, and that, you know, new thinking. And then the last one is, um, you know, as I look back and when I uh, founded Urban Pacific, I was 32 years old. And, you know, if you look at statistically, that's when most people, you know, start to get that. If they're going to be entrepreneurial, that's sort of the time in their life statistically that they decide to launch. And I don't know that there's anything magic about that. But I, as I look back on it now, I would really, as an, if I was a new entrepreneur, I would think very seriously about even staying in the corporate world or whatever, you know, job you're in, if it's appropriate for what you want to be, you know, an entrepreneur for in the future and really spend a lot of time at building networks. And, and networking is, is again, a, a term that people use a lot. And, and the way I think of it is not networking in the sense of going to a meeting and handing out cards, although that's one version of it, but really about building powerful networks of people who know you and you know them you've built trust with them you have an identity with them so, you know think capital sources right for multifamily investment or development and so when you do eventually launch and, and say you do instead of at 32 you do it at 37 that by the time you're 37 these capital sources have seen you in a in a more senior executive role at a court in a corporate role they've watched you you know do battle and, and, you know, and, and, you know, problem solve and be creative, even probably seeing some failures and some recovery from those failures. And so then when you launch, you have, you know, a, a deeper and broader set of people that now believe in you. And so I think, you, you know, it will make for a more powerful launch. Um, I didn't do it that way. And I spent really the first, you know, five to 10 years of my entrepreneurial career doing just that getting no paycheck. I mean, we made, you know, a lot of money during that time period, but I, you know, I thought about how much more could I have made? How much further could I have grown if I had done it a little bit differently? And I don't like, you know, I don't suffer over this, you know, having done it different historically. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for a million. Um, but I do go, is there a different, more powerful, strategic, effective and competitive way to do it? And that's where I land is, you know, building powerful networks as aggressively as soon and, and as, and as, you know, powerfully as you can. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, I tell that to a lot of people. I mean, it, there's a lot of value in maintaining your job, uh, mm -hmm. for a while. I mean, not only you have a steady income, uh, while you're building your business, but you're, 
building those networks. Especially. Yeah. And it, okay. it kind of depends on what type of, type of job you were in. You know, mm-hmm. I was a teacher, yeah. a high school teacher. So were my networks going to be that strong? No. But, uh, you know, could I do it? But you could have kept the job and like been intentional about trying to build networks in the real estate business. Cause that's where you, you know, you change yeah. that, right? Yeah. Or I could have, or I could have got a different type of job that would have <laughs> allowed me to really learn some of the things that look yeah. I mean, If you know, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to do this thing, you can be really intentional while you're at your job. Absolutely. Learning the processes and the systems, networking with people, building those relationships, getting throughout just not only your own company, but throughout the industry yeah, uh, and really learning and being intentional. And yeah, I mean, I, I quit teaching when I was maybe 27 mm-hmm. and I struggled a lot early on with building those networks. I mean, that yeah. was, was a yeah. big, Same here. big challenge. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, you know, in fact, I, uh, I wrote an article if people want to go on our website, which I'll, I'll give to you later, but I wrote an article on six ways to build your real estate development career. And one of them was, um, you know, get a mentor and, and do internships. Now, that's not necessarily a job, per se, in the way that we're talking about here. But the whole point of it was to get a, an education from people who already do it at the highest it. levels. And, you know, in this instance, you could get a job as a, you know, system PM or an analyst or whatever the job would be for, you know, how to underwrite and, and put, you know, multifamily deals together. And that is so much more valuable than, you know, uh, doing it, trying to do it on your own or me do it on my own. And, you know, you can read all the books. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had mentoring relationships and, you know, I advise people, you know, to, to continue to seek out and, and, you know, again, mentors are a different form of network, but, you know, back to that building networks thing, mentors are part of that. Um, you know, you can read every book. I mean, there's, you know, podcasts like yours and, you know, there's tons and tons of info out there. And then I tell people, look, if you want to be a multifamily investor, go underwrite a hundred deals to begin with. Don't even try to do the deals. I mean, if you find something that's so brilliantly underpriced, then, you know, you'll find investors for it, right? But go underwrite a hundred and knowing you're not going to do the deal, you'll know rents, you'll know your market, you'll have seen a bunch of product, you know, the brokers, right? You've built your own pro forma. You've asked the brokers 10 million questions and figured all the right ones and wrong ones to ask, right? And, you know, you get done with a hundred and, and you'll be probably better than most. Right. And that takes no money, takes time and, and energy. Um, and, but you can do it, no money, no risk. Right. What a, what a beautiful way to do it. And then when you come out and you do actually want to take some risk, now you're seasoned much more than most people do. I think people like, you know, you've, you've probably talked to those people as I have, everybody wants to launch and get into their first deal as soon as they can. And I get it right. The entrepreneurial drive and, you know, wanting to make things happen is, you know, usually, you know, it's built into people and I, I'm the same. Um, but you know, you and I having done this, you know, a lot, you got, ah, but there's a different, more powerful way to do it. So, you know, hopefully people listen to these, uh, you know, your podcast and other podcasts and, you know, come out of that with, uh, you know, a more powerful way to start. Yeah. And I don't think you're saying don't, just don't do it. Don't get started yet. But you're saying, look, I mean, this is a long game and yeah. we're in it for the long term. Be patient and do it. Mm-hmm. Educate yourself, get yeah. mentors, surround yourself with the right people. 
and, and do it the right way, you're going to be a lot more successful yeah. than if you just rush into it and think it's going to be a get rich well, type of thing. You know, plus, I mean, you know, that resources that are available today. I mean, when I started my, you know, real estate, you know, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a real estate entrepreneur at the time I was 18, which is a long time ago now. Um, there was no YouTube, there were no podcasts. I mean, there was a, you know, a few books around, which, you know, I read everything I could, you know, I took every real estate, you know, course I could take in college. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it, it comes from interpersonal, re, uh, relations with people, learning from people, learning from deal makers, watching deals to happen. And so you're just, yes, it's more time. Yes. You have to be patient. I totally agree with your assessment there, by the way, but when you do do your first deal, it will be so much better. And I just, you can't know that, right. You can't know what a good deal and a bad deal is when you're new, right. Cause you're new, right. Nothing wrong with that. But being oriented around, you know, learning first and executing later, I mean, your, your first deal after you've learned and looked at 100 deals will, will make you probably 10 times the money you could have made had you launched, you know, prematurely and or, hey, by the way, you, you, you missed the opportunity to lose a lot of money in, in the early deals, <laughs> right? You know, you, 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 you know what, what, what's the saying of, uh, you know, observing others and learning from their mistakes and not necessarily having to make those same mistakes yourself. Right. Yeah. Something, something along yeah. those lines. Yeah. Make mistakes on other people's backs. Yeah. Um, right. So with that, what's a, what's a mistake that you've made and how have you mm -hmm. learned from it, improved from it? Yeah. So uh, you know, the main one I go to Todd is just being mindful and observant and vigilant about economic cycles. And, and applying it to yourself, like literally saying, the I am not immune to the economic cycle. So the same philosophy that I described earlier when I was young, every, I could make every deal work. Well, at the same time is, oh, well, you know, the recession won't, you know, get me. And I didn't say those little words, but something to that effect. And, in, and you know, in fact, that a lot of the, you know, social media, you know, output and, and you know, our, our mailing list output is about the tools that we're using to track the economic cycle, you know, what our observations are, you know, things that we saw in the 2008 recession that we might look for to be signs of the next recession. And the next one will be different. Even just having the knowledge of, you know, every economic cycle is different. Um, to not be, you know, to listening to all the wrong people too much. Mainstream media is awful about, you know, economic, you know, you know, tea read, tea, you know, tea, uh, tea leaf reading, you know, economic, you well, know, it's all about ratings for them. They, right. They, they, I mean, they'll, they'll, it's an agenda. I mean, right. Just That's about right. how many people can watch their show. That's right. It's and and so, yeah, agreed. And then in fact, what I've done is I have a, 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 you know, small, you know, group of, you know, channels that I, you know, and I call them channels, but, you know, you know, blog posts, social media accounts, um, you know, people on YouTube. So as an example, I follow a guy named Bill McBride who has a blog called Calculated Risk Blog. Look it up on Google. You can find it. And he's got a housing centric, you know, view of the world. He's an ex, you know, fortune 500 executive started writing about real estate and, and economic cycles and recessions prior to the 2008, in fact, made the call for the 08 recession, 
also made the call for, you know, bottom of this, you know, cycle in 2010, 2011 and great graphs. So he graphs lots of housing statistics. So you can see visually, you know, how we stack up today versus, you know, past economic cycles. Um, I also follow a website called econpi, that's E-C-O-N-P-I.com. And they have something, um, that a, 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 how can I put it? It's an economic cycle tracker. Um, and it's a grid system where they calculate multiple economic variables. And I don't remember the count, but it's something like 20, 20 or 25 different economic variables. And then they graph them in a way that basically represents where we are in the economic cycle. Are we expanding? Are we contracting? Are we moving towards expansion, towards retraction? And it gives a real time, basically weekly, you know, twice, you know, or, or every two weeks update. Um, and that to me has been a very powerful, uh, way to look at it. We're tracking other, you know, economic and recessionary indicators. Obviously the yield curve has been, you know, on everybody's mind lately, although people are suggesting that maybe because of, you know, all the money that came in from the fed in the last recession that we maybe, you know, have tweaked the, the cycle in a way that invert inverted yield curve isn't a good indicator anymore. But also looking for things like, oh, it's different this time, right? Remember, I don't know if you remember the, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, you know, internet bust in 99, 2000. Yeah. I remember people saying at the time, oh, it's different this time. You know, companies don't need to make money. You know, economic principles are suspended or something along those lines. And And I really, at the time, I didn't listen to that because everybody was caught up in the frothiness of, you know, everybody wanted to work for an internet company or own an internet stock. And then it all, you know, came <laughs> crashing down, Reality, and, yeah. you know, and, and that should have been lessons learned for 08, but then, you know, Oh, you know, the internet's not real estate, real estate's not the internet. So it's different. Right. Uh, I remember in, in 2006, you know, there's a stat. In fact, I kept the article. I still have it in a book that I have all the clippings I made from, you know, people talking about economic cycles. And it was, you know, something to the effect of, again, a headline of, oh, housing prices have gone up, you know, you know, haven't gone down for like the last since 1930, you know, and they had some graph that, I don't know how they made the graph work, but, you know, you looked at it and you go, oh yeah, I could see that. And then you sort of buy into that, you know, silliness. And, you know, that's just one data point in a very, very noisy background. So now our jobs are to sort of like, you know, read through everything that we, you know, see and hear and, and, you know, see on the internet and try to make an assessment about what is this person, you know, what's their objective? You know, like yeah. you said, do they yeah. want to get ratings? You know, Paul Krugman, you know, is a well-known guy. He's been bearish for, you know, you know, somebody joked the last eight, you know, the last eight out of five recessions, he's been bearish, right? Um, you know, he's got a, he's got an agenda. So I'm looking for people like Bill McBride who writes calculate risk. He's got no dog in the hunt. He's retired. He's made his money. He has a skill set to read, you know, statistics, mm -hmm. read reports and report it, you know, neutrally, right. He's got no like agenda. I mean, he's got a blog that probably, you know, serves him well to, to generate revenues and retirement. Um, but you can just, you know, I've been following him for several years and I just know from how he's approached things and watching him be successful in his assessments to know, okay, he's, you know, he's a, a neutral, he wants to present what's the truth, at least as he sees it from his standpoint and has no other agenda that I can tell. 
Now, I won't only rely on him. I want, you know, at least three to five good, different, you know, sector economic cycle, you know, opinions or economic cycle tracking tools like the EcomPy website. And then, you know, at the end of the day, we all have to make our own assessment as to whether, uh, you know, a recession is coming. And even then, you know, you don't know what the timing is. You know, the yield curve was inverted, you know, a few months back. People assess 12 to 18 months, generally, historically, for the recession to hit after the yield curve inverted. Um, but the, you know, the, uh, the, the two-year and the three-month, one inverted, one did not, that has never happened before. So clearly, we're in a different, you know, era for a yield curve. But nonetheless, it's just, you know, one signal amongst multiple that we have to track. And then you compare and then you pair that up with the conservative underwriting that we talked about before. I mean, that's all you can do is just try to have deals that are relatively defensive, you know, that if a recession comes, you're not crushed. You may have to, you know, manage it closely for, you know, several years so you don't lose money, right? But you're not wiped out, which is, you know, what we saw, you know, a lot of people uh, got wiped out in the OA recession. Is your philosophy to pull back when you see a recession coming or is it to just continue on because you know what you've put in place is sound and um, you want to continue to grow? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that the, you know, for, if you talk to most investors, they would say, and you'll see a lot of people that just go, look, I stopped building. You know, they just, you know, they don't do any more new projects. And, and that's certainly one way to do it. Um, for us, you know, if we were only a merchant build model, which is build it, rent it, sell it immediately, then absolutely, that's the thing to do is you just, you know, as soon as you think there's any inkling, you just, you don't do any more new projects, Stop. right? Yeah. Here's the interesting thing that I found. And again, being very like cautious and vigilant about the cycle is I'm actually encouraged um, by these long-term hold models that we're now in for capital raises, because if I can say there's a story around being defensive in a downturn and I can have a model that's relatively stable. And I say relatively, because again, there's no guarantee. We don't sit here saying we're bulletproof and gosh, we got this, you know, dialed and we'll never, you know, have a bad day. We're just again saying statistically, we have the best chance to survive and, and, you know, recover quickly. Right. Um, but actually, we're, we're looking forward to, you know, construction costs moderating, like I talked about before, um, looking forward to land becoming potentially more, you know, inexpensive, although, in my experience, land sellers are always the first to jump on an upward trend and the last to, you know, jump off of a downward <laughs> trend. Um, you know, capital will moderate, you know, interest rates will moderate. So, you know, we have to be cautious, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, go out and start 30 projects tomorrow. Um, but I would start, you know, three to five. And in fact, we are starting that many, um, where we have a story that if it does change, you know, that we can be defensive and, and that's, you know, that's the way to be prudent, which is take a risk, but having it, you know, well-researched and conservative under conservatively underwritten. Yeah. Good answer. Um, all right. So we got to wrap up here. I got a couple last questions for you. Uh, what's a, what's a book that you recommend to our listeners? Um, real estate, yeah. business, mm -hmm. mindset, you know, what's, yeah. what's one of your favorite books? So it's a great question. I won't necessarily quote any real estate books because I think that, you know, those are pretty commonly known. So I, I go out of the real estate domain a little bit. 
Um, so I'm a follower of a guy named Grant Cardone, uh, which, you know, you've heard about Grant. I love his 10X rule book. Um, you know, I think in this business of real estate, we're always trying to balance, you know, going crazy and doing too much. But I also find that if I look at myself over the years, uh, assuming I, you know, now prudently underwrite deals, um, that I need to be setting my goals for the long run much higher than, than I have. And in fact, I'm, I'm in that process doing that right now. Um, the other one I, we've been spending a lot of time right now. So we're actually building out a whole investor acquisition system or what we call IAS. And that would be a platform that we have, a platform would be website, email marketing, social media channels. And we do a lot of that work, but this would all be cohesively designed to get our name and identity and product type out in the marketplace as broadly as possible. And so that has us basically really spending a lot of time in, in the marketing domain and digital content production. If anybody goes and you know, searches me on Google, um, you'll see a lot of our channels, Twitter and Instagram and, and LinkedIn, we're you know, uh, pretty broadly out there in the marketplace. But Gary Vaynerchuk is a guy I follow as well. And, um, you know, he has a book called Crushing It or really any of his books, but his, his philosophy is the one I think about in answering this question, which he basically says in this day and age of the internet and technology and digital content marketing, and this is applicable to any business, even the, you know, stoddy old, you know, real estate business is that every company is now a media company and needs to be in the marketplace to do their business effectively and competitively, right? As a real estate investor or a real estate sponsor, you now need to be out in the marketplace like a media company is and, and, and would be in a way to remain competitive because all your competitors, both the sponsors or investors are doing the same thing. So now we're a you know, developer, sponsor, um, so we're out in the marketplace in that format, raising capital from investors, but you know, the, the whole crowdfunding domain, um, you know, a lot, I see family offices getting into digital content marketing to get their names out there. Uh, I had a phone call yesterday, um, with a group who basically isn't a crowdfunding platform, but they built a whole, you know, digital content marketing platform for, to raise capital for their business, which is like a fund manager intermediary. And then they talk to us as potentially putting that capital into our deals. And so everybody's making that move and to remain competitive here in that space, you got to continue to make that move. I would also say for anybody who's trying to get, you know, is in the space of trying to find more deals, be it land, be it deals to acquire as value add, you need to be doing that there also, right? I mean, what a powerful, uh, you know, mechanism that if you want to try to find as many off market deals as you can, that's, you know, that's our mandate both as developers and acquirers of value-add deals, uh, why would you not be doing that? In fact, I, I assess that if you're not doing that, you're already behind uh, from a competitive standpoint. Interesting. Yeah, good, good, good point, sir. Thank you. Um, so last question before we wrap up, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back a little bit to what I talked about before about strategic knowledge, but basically, you know, continuous learning, uh, competitive learning. And what I say competitive learning is learning about new things, new technologies, new ways to do business better than your competitors, right? In whatever way that means in your industry. So seek out, you know, uh, people who are performing at the highest levels in any domain, but, you know, obviously we're talking about real estate, but even this digital content marketing world that we talked about 
as seek out those high performers and, and learn with them, become part of their networks in a learning capacity, right? So acquisition of strategic knowledge is, is you know, my main pillar for that. Uh, the second one we talked about before is building powerful networks. I continue to come back time and time again, Ty, I'm sure you find the same thing that, you know, I met that new person, I met that new company, and all of a sudden they expand my capacity and capabilities to do more deals, bigger deals, do deals more profitably. And I, I one day, I think I will get over this, but I'm just continuously surprised. I go, oh, that was so great to meet that new person and have them part, be part of my network. They're the right person. They're powerful in their own way, in their own offer. Um, they're after learning themselves. And then, you know, um, you know, transacting with them. And I don't mean like in a mercenary way, but trading, Hey, I, let me help you. And, and I could use this help in return. That could be yeah. capital. That could be networks. That could be resume. That could be resources, deals. Right. And in fact, my, my oldest son uh, is a freshman at USC and I basically coaching him. I said, look, you're going to a great school and that has a network. That's part of the reason we picked it, but you have to work and build your network in that school. Like you can't, you know, not do that. It you doesn't come to you. That. It doesn't, right? I mean, even at a place like that and in any environment, you have to be intentional and have that be a, your objective and yeah. not just build any network, but build a powerful network, right? Like, you know, if you had the top five, you know, most, you know, valuable people in the world in your network, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the Warren Buffetts and the Bill Gates and the Elon Musk of the world, and you had those people in your network, how, what level could you perform at? I mean, it would just be mind blowing, you know? Some of us, none of us may ever meet those people in the way that I described, but if you go just a few notches above you where you're at or yeah. several 10 notches above you, I mean, that's the people you need to, you know, to connect with and learn from and they will, you know, they'll, you know, it's be like rocket fuel. Um, and then at the end of the day, I think both these strategic knowledge and powerful networks ultimately end up helping you to build powerful teams, powerful business organizations, right? And again, that's networks, right? So I have a group of people around me, vendors, you know, architects, people who operate in the construction world, property managers, brokers, capital sources, people that IJV deals with, right? You know, if we, if we want to, you know, um, trade risk in a deal, um, landowners. Um, so all these people, as you build into a powerful business organization becomes, you know, sort of a, a, a flywheel of, you know, benefit and positive growth. And then, so I think, you, you know, the three pillars even work together, you know, first you get the knowledge, then you build the networks, then you build the powerful business organization. And in fact, they sort of go in that order the way I think of it. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, people assess you in the real estate business. I mean, even stuff as silly as like, hey, what kind of office space do you have? Or do you not have office space? And I'm not saying there's a right or the wrong answer, but if you want to be the most powerful operator, sponsor, or investor in the marketplace, then these are the sorts of things that you got to think about. And, you know, any one of these three can help that. But when you put them all together, they become you know, much more effective and strategic way to operate. Yeah. Uh, good stuff, Scott. I really appreciate it. Um, the time you've been able to spend with us and learned, learned a lot, took a lot from this episode and, and really you, just God. the thought that you put into your business and, and the answers that you've given have, have really provided our listeners a lot of value. 
Last thing I got to ask from you is how can our listeners get in contact with you? Yeah, appreciate that. So um, best way is to go to our website, which is www.urbanpacific.com. There's a a contact um, box at the bottom of our website and and we monitor that continuously. Uh, Anybody is welcome to email me. Uh, It's my last name, Chopin at urbanpacific.com is the email. Um, and you know, I, I, I keep that open. I'm on social media. So if somebody wants to send me uh, direct messages on Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn, LinkedIn, I use, you know, quite a bit. Um, so those are all good channels. And I, you know, we are, I have a team of people who monitor them and, you know, I'm looking at them almost daily myself. So that's, those are great ways to reach out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Scott, you have a fantastic rest of the day. All right, Todd. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Yeah. Likewise. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. A couple things before we go. Again, go on to our Facebook page, Pillars of Wealth. We'd love to have you on there. Go on to iTunes, give us a rating and review, and subscribe to the show. Also, um, you know, don't forget, reach out to me if you want any help with uh, potentially growing your business. And reach out to John Styles to help you buy or sell real estate. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic the rest of the day. And as I say, make every day a Saturday.